I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's lovely to have you here with me, because this evening we're continuing with Anne of Avonlea. But first, let's take some time to relax. Take a deep breath in and out through your nose. When you breathe deeply, you physically calm your nervous system, which is why you feel more peaceful. Focusing on these calming breaths, notice now how the air enters and leaves your body. Notice how the diaphragm works to support each breath. If your mind wanders, gently guide it back. Try not to get frustrated. Take one more breath in and out, inviting in the positive and releasing the negative. And bring your attention to my voice as I recap our last episode. Previously, Anne had received a letter from her friend Priscilla, confirming that her aunt, Charlotte E. Morgan, Anne's favourite author, was coming to Avonlea. They would host Mrs. Morgan at Green Gables for lunch before she headed back to the mainland. Marilla promised Anne she could prepare the meal with Diana's help, and Anne managed to get Davy to promise to be good all day. The day came and the house was spotless. The parlor and dining room were covered with flower arrangements and the food was prepared for their guests to dine at 1 p.m. Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy arrived at 12.30 and asked to see a very expensive serving plate Anne had borrowed from Miss Barry, Diana's aunt and Dan's friend, for Mrs. Lynn's aid dinner. While Anne was showing it, a crash came from the kitchen and the bowl was set carefully on the second step while the situation was investigated. Davy had fallen on top of the lemon pies while using the table to reach a shelf and was sent to his room. At 1.30, it became clear Mrs. Morgan and Priscilla weren't going to come. They ate and were about to say their goodbyes when another crash came from the hall. The precious plate lay in pieces on the floor. 
Davy had crept down and accidentally knocked it off the stem. An appropriate end to a very disappointing day. Tonight, we pick up with Anne receiving some potentially good news from Diana. So, lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 18 An Adventure on the Tory Road Anne, said Davy, sitting up in bed and propping his chin on his hands. And where is sleep? People go to sleep every night, and of course I know it's the place where I do things I dream, but I want to know where it is and how I get there and back without knowing anything about it. And in my nighty too. Where is it? Anne was kneeling at the west gable window, watching the sunset sky that was like a great flower with petals of crocus and a heart of fiery yellow. She turned her head at Davy's question, and answered dreamily. Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Paul Irving would have known the meaning of this, or made a meaning out of it for himself, if he didn't. But practical Davy, who, as Anne often despairingly remarked, hadn't a particle of imagination, was only puzzled and disgusted. Anne, I believe you're just talking nonsense. Of course I was, dear boy. Don't you know that it is only very foolish folk who talk sense all the time? Well, I think you might give me a sensible answer when I ask a sensible question, said Davy in an injured tone. Oh, you are too little to understand said Anne. She felt rather ashamed of saying it, for had she not, in keen remembrance of many similar snubs administered in her own early years, solemnly vowed that she would never tell any child it was too little to understand. Yet here she was, doing it. So wide sometimes is the gulf between theory and practice. Well, I'm doing my best to grow, said Davy. It's a thing you can't hurry much. Marilla wasn't so stingy with her jam, I believe I'd grow a lot faster. Marilla is not stingy, Davy, said Anne severely. It's very ungrateful for you to say such a thing. There's another word that means the same thing and sounds a lot better. I just don't remember it, said Davy, frowning intently. I heard Marilla say she was it herself the other day. If you mean economical, it's a very different thing from being stingy, 
It is an excellent trait in a person if she is economical. If Marilla had been stingy, she wouldn't have taken you and Dora when your mother died. Would you have liked to live with Mrs. Wiggins? You just bet I wouldn't. Davy was emphatic on that point. No, I don't want to go out to Uncle Richard, neither. I'd rather live here, even if Marilla is that long-tailed word when it comes to jam. Just because you're here, Anne. Say, Anne, won't you tell me a story before I go to sleep? I don't want a fairy story. They're all right for girls, I suppose. But I want something exciting. Lots of killing and shooting in it. And a house on fire. And interesting things like that. Fortunately for Anne, Marilla called out at this moment from her room. Anne, Diana's signalling at a great rate. You better see what she wants. Anne ran to the east gable and saw flashes of light coming in through the twilight from Diana's window in groups of five, which meant, according to their old childish code, Come over at once, for I have something important to reveal. Anne threw her white shawl over her head and hastened through the haunted wood and across Mr. Bell's pasture corner to Orchard Slope. I've good news for you, Anne, said Diana. Mother and I have just got home from Carmody and I saw Mary Sentner from Spencer Vale in Mr. Blair's store. She says the old cop girls on the Tory road have a willow-ware platter and she thinks it's exactly like the one we had at supper. She says they'll likely sell it, for Martha Cop has never been known to keep anything she could sell. But if they won't, there's a platter at Wesley Keeson's at Spencer Vale and she knows they'd sell it but she isn't sure it's just the same kind as Aunt Josephine's. I'll go right over to Spencer Vale after it tomorrow, said Anne resolutely. And you must come with me. It'll be such a weight off my mind, for I have to go to town day after tomorrow, and how can I face your Aunt Josephine without a willow-ware platter? It will be even worse than the time I had to confess about jumping on the spare room bed. Both girls laughed over the old memory, concerning which, if any of my readers are ignorant and curious, I must refer them to Anne's earlier history. The next afternoon, the girls fared forth on their platter-hunting expedition. It was ten miles to Spencer Vale, and the day was not especially pleasant for travelling, was very warm and windless, and the dust on the road was such as might have been expected after six weeks of dry weather. Oh, I do wish it would rain soon, sighed Anne. Everything is so parched up. The poor fields just seem pitiful to me, and the trees seem to be stretching out their hands, pleading for rain. As for my garden, it hurts me every time I go into it. I suppose I shouldn't complain about a garden when the farmer's crops are suffering so. 
Mr. Harrison says his pastures are so scorched up that his poor cows can hardly get a bite to eat, and he feels guilty every time he meets their eyes. After a wearisome drive, the girls reached Spencervale and turned down the Tory Road. A green, solitary highway where the strips of grass between the wheel tracks bore evidence to lack of travel. Along most of its extent was lined with thick-set young spruces crowding down the roadway, with here and there a break where the back field of a Spencervale farm came out to the fence, or an expanse of stumps was aflame with fireweed and goldenrod. Why is it called the Tory Road? asked Anne. Mr. Allen says it's on the principle of calling a place a grove because there are no trees in it, said Diana. For nobody lives along the road except the cop girls and old Martin Bovier at the further end, who is a liberal. The Tory government ran the road through when they were in power just to show they were doing something. Diana's father was a liberal, for which reason she and Anne never discussed politics. Green Gables folk had always been conservative. Finally, the girls came to the old cop homestead, a place of such exceeding external neatness that even Green Gables would have suffered by contrast. The house was a very old-fashioned one, situated on a slope, which fact had necessitated the building of a stone basement under one end. The house and outbuildings were all whitewashed to a condition of blinding perfection, and not a weed was visible in the prim kitchen garden surrounded by its white paling. The shades are all down, said Diana ruefully. I believe that nobody is home. This proved to be the case. The girls looked at each other in perplexity. I don't know what to do, said Anne. If I was sure the platter was the right kind, I would not mind waiting until they came home. But if it isn't, it may be too late to go to Wesley Keeson's afterward. Diana looked at a certain little square window over the basement. That is the pantry window, I feel sure, she said. Because this house is just like Uncle Charles's at Newbridge, and that's their pantry window. The shade isn't down, so if we climbed up on the roof of that little house, we could look into the pantry and might be able to see the platter. Do you think it would be any harm? No, I don't think so, decided Anne after due reflection, since our motive is not idle curiosity. This important point of ethics being settled, Anne prepared to mount the aforesaid little house, a construction of lathes with a peaked roof, which had in times past served as a habitation for ducks. The cop girls had given up keeping ducks because they were such untidy birds 
and the house had not been used for some years, save as an abode of correction for settling hens. Although scrupulously whitewashed, it had become somewhat shaky, and Anne felt rather dubious as she scrambled up from the vantage point of a keg placed on a box. I'm afraid it won't bear my weight, she said as she gingerly stepped on the roof. Lean on the windowsill, advised Diana, and Anne accordingly leaned. Much to her delight, she saw as she peered through the pane a willow-ware platter, exactly such as she was in quest of, on the shelf in front of the window. So much she saw before the catastrophe came. In her joy, Anne forgot the precarious nature of her footing, incautiously ceased to lean on the windowsill, gave an impulsive little hop of pleasure, and the next moment she had crashed through the roof up to her armpits, and there she hung, quite unable to extricate herself. Diana dashed into the duck house, and seizing her unfortunate friend by the waist, tried to draw her down. Ow, don't, said poor Anne. There are some long splinters sticking into me. See if you can put something under my feet. Then perhaps I can draw myself up. Diana hastily dragged in the previously mentioned keg, and Anne found that it was just sufficiently high to furnish a secure resting place for her feet, but she could not release herself. Could I pull you out if I crawled up? suggested Diana. Anne shook her head hopelessly. No, the splinters hurt too badly. If you can find an axe, you might be able to chop me out, though. Oh, dear. I do really begin to believe that I was born under an ill-omened star. Diana searched faithfully, but no axe was to be found. I'll have to go for help, she said, returning to the prisoner. No, indeed you won't, said Anne vehemently. If you do, the story of this will get out everywhere, and I shall be ashamed to show my face. No, we must just wait until the cop girls come home and bind them to secrecy. They'll know where the axe is and get me out. I'm not uncomfortable as long as I keep perfectly still. It's uncomfortable in body, I mean. I wonder what the cop girls value this house at. I shall have to pay for the damage I've done. But I wouldn't mind that if I were only sure they would understand my motive in peeping in at their pantry window. My sole comfort is that platter is just the kind I want, and if Miss Cop will only sell it to me, I shall be resigned to what has happened. What if the Cop girls don't come home until after night, or till tomorrow? suggested Diana. If they're not back by sunset, you'll have to go for other assistance, I suppose, said Anne reluctantly. 
but you mustn't go until you really have to. Oh dear, this is a dreadful predicament. I wouldn't mind my misfortune so much if they were romantic, as Mrs. Morgan's heroines always are, but they are always just simply ridiculous. Fancy what the cop girls will think when they drive into their yard and see a girl's head and shoulders sticking out of the roof of one of their outhouses. Listen, is that a wagon? No, Diana. I believe it's thunder. Thunder it was, undoubtedly. And Diana, having made a hasty pilgrimage around the house, returned to announce that a very black cloud was rising rapidly in the northwest. I believe we're going to have a heavy thunder shower, she exclaimed in dismay. Oh, Anne, what will we do? We must prepare for it, said Anne tranquilly. A thunderstorm seemed a trifle in comparison with what had already happened. You'd better drive the horse and buggy into that open shed. Fortunately, my parasol is in the buggy. Here, take my hat with you. Marilla told me I was a goose to put on my best hat to come to the Tory road, and she was right. She always is. Diana untied the pony and drove it into the shed, just as the first heavy drops of rain fell. There she sat and watched the resulting downpour, which was so thick and heavy she could hardly see Anne through it, holding the parasol bravely over her bare head. There was not a great deal of thunder, but for the best part of an hour, the rain came merrily down. Occasionally, Anne slanted back her parasol and waved an encouraging hand to her friend. But conversation at that distance was quite out of the question. Finally, the rain ceased. The sun came out, and Diana ventured across the puddles of the yard. Did you get very wet? She asked anxiously. I know, returned Anne cheerfully. My head and shoulders are quite dry. My skirt is only a little damp where the rain beat through the lathes. Don't pity me, Diana, for I haven't minded it at all. Keep thinking how much good the rain will do and how glad my garden must be for it and imagining what the flowers and buds will think when the drops began to fall. I imagined out a most interesting dialogue between the asters and the sweet peas, and the wild canaries in the lilac bush, and the guardian spirit of the garden. When I go home, I mean to write it down. I wish I had a pencil and paper to do it now, because I dare say I'll forget the best parts before I reach home. Diana, the faithful, had a pencil, and discovered a sheet of wrapping paper in the box of the buggy. Anne folded up her dripping parasol, put on her hat, spread the wrapping paper on a shingle Diana handed up, and wrote out her garden idol under conditions 
that could hardly be considered as favourable to literature. Nevertheless, the result was quite pretty, and Diana was enraptured when Anne read it to her. Oh, Anne, it's sweet. Just sweet. Do send it to the Canadian woman. Anne shook her head. No, it wouldn't be suitable at all. There's no plot in it, you see. Just a string of fancies. I like writing such things, but of course, nothing of the sort would ever do for publication. For editors insist on plots, so Priscilla says. Oh, there's Miss Sarah Cock now. Please, Diana, go and explain. Miss Sarah Cock was a small person, garbed in shabby black, with a hat chosen less for vain adornment than for qualities that would wear well. She looked as amazed as might be expected on seeing the curious tableau in her yard. But when she heard Diana's explanation, she was all sympathy. She hurriedly unlocked the back door, produced the axe, and with a few skillful blows set Anne free. The latter, somewhat tired and stiff, ducked down into the interior of her prison and thankfully emerged into liberty once more. Miss Cop, she said earnestly, I assure you, I looked into your pantry window only to discover if you had a willow ware platter. I didn't see anything else. I didn't look for anything else. Bless you, that's all right, said Miss Sarah amiably. You needn't worry. There's no harm done. Thank goodness we cops keep our pantries presentable at all times and don't care who sees into them. As for that old duck house, I'm glad it's smashed, for maybe now Martha will agree to having it taken down. She never would before for fear it might come in handy sometime, but I've had to whitewash it every spring. She might as well argue with a post as with Martha. She went to town today. I drove her to the station. And you want to buy my platter? Well, what will you give for it? Twenty dollars, said Anne, who was never meant to match business wits with a cop, or she would not have offered her price at the start. Well, now see, said Miss Sarah cautiously. That platter is mine, fortunately, or I'd never dare sell it when Martha wasn't here. As it is, I dare say she'll raise a fuss. Martha is the boss of this establishment, I can tell you. I'm getting awful tired of living under another woman's thumb. But come in, come in. You must be real tired and hungry. I'll do the best I can for you in way of tea, but I warn you not to expect anything but bread and butter and some cowcumbers. Martha locked up the cake and cheese and preserves before she went. She always does, because she says I'm too extravagant with them if company comes. The girls were hungry enough to do justice to any fare, and they enjoyed Miss Sarah's excellent bread and butter and cowcumbers thoroughly. When the meal was over, Miss Sarah said, 
I don't know as I mind selling the platter, but it's worth $25. It's a very old platter. Diana gave Anne's foot a gentle kick under the table, meaning, don't agree, she'll let it go for 20 if you hold out. But Anne was not minded to take any chances in regard to that precious platter. She promptly agreed to give 25, and Miss Sarah looked as if she felt sorry she hadn't asked for 30. Well, I guess you may have it. I want all the money I can scare up just now. The fact is, Miss Sarah threw up her head importantly with a proud flush on her thin cheeks. I'm going to be married to Luther Wallace. He wanted me 20 years ago. I liked him real well, but he was poor then and father packed him off. I suppose I shouldn't have let him get so meek, but I was timid and frightened of father. Besides, I didn't know men were so scarce. When the girls were safely away, Diana driving and Anne holding the coveted platter carefully on her lap, the green, rain-fresh solitudes of the Tory road were enlivened by ripples of girlish laughter. I'll amuse your Aunt Josephine with the strange, eventful history of this afternoon when I go to town tomorrow had a rather trying time, but it's over now. I've got the platter, and that rain has laid the dust beautifully, so all's well that ends well. We're not home yet, said Diana, rather pessimistically. And there's no telling what may happen before we are. Such a girl to have adventures, Anne. Having adventures comes natural to some people, said Anne serenely. You just have a gift for them, or you haven't. Chapter 19 Just a Happy Day After all, Anne had said to Marilla once, I believe the nicest and sweetest days are not those on which anything very splendid or wonderful or exciting happens but just those that bring simple little pleasures, following on from another softly, like pearls slipping off a string. Life at Green Gables was full of such days, for Anne's adventures and misadventures, like those of other people, did not happen all at once, but were sprinkled over the year with long stretches of harmless, happy days between, filled with work and dreams and laughter and lessons. Such a day came in late August. In the forenoon, Anne and Diana rode the delighted twins down the pond to the sand shore to pick sweetgrass and paddle in the surf over which the wind was harping an old lyric learned when the world was young. In the afternoon, Anne walked down to the old Irving place to see Paul. She found him stretched out on the grassy bank beside the thick fir grove that sheltered the house on the north, 
absorbed in a book of fairy tales. He sprang up radiantly at the sight of her. I'm so glad you've come, teacher, he said eagerly, because grandma's away. You'll stay and have tea with me, won't you? So lonesome to have tea all by oneself. You know, teacher, I've had serious thoughts of asking young Mary Jo to sit down and eat her tea with me, but I expect grandma wouldn't approve. Of course I'll stay to tea, said Anne gaily. I was dying to be asked. My mouth has been watering for some more of your grandma's delicious shortbread ever since I had tea here before. Paul looked very sober. If it depended on me, teacher, he said, standing before Anne with his hands in his pockets and his beautiful little face shadowed with sudden care. You should have shortbread with a right goodwill. But it depends on Mary Jo. I heard Grandma telling her before she left that she wasn't to give me any shortcake because it was too rich for little boys' stomachs. But maybe Mary Jo will cut some for you if I promise I won't eat any. Let us hope for the best. Yes, let us, agreed Anne, whom this cheerful philosophy suited exactly. And if Mary Jo proves hard-hearted and won't give me any shortbread, it doesn't matter in the least, so you're not to worry over that. Sure she won't mind if she doesn't, said Paul anxiously. Perfectly sure, dear heart. Oh, then I won't worry, said Paul with a long breath of relief. Especially as I really think Mary Jo will listen to reason. She's not a naturally unreasonable person, but she has learned by experience that it doesn't do to disobey Grandma's orders. Grandma is an excellent woman, but people must do as she tells them. She was very much pleased with me this morning, because I managed at last to eat my plate full of porridge. It was a great effort, but I succeeded. Grandma says she thinks she'll make a man of me yet. But teacher, I want to ask you a very important question. You will answer it truthfully, won't you? I'll try, promised Anne. Do you think I'm wrong in my upper story? Asked Paul, as if his very existence depended on her reply. Goodness, no, exclaimed Anne in amazement. Certainly you're not. What put such an idea into your head? Mary Jo, but she didn't know I heard her. Mrs. Peter Sloane's hired girl, Veronica, came to see Mary Jo last evening, and I heard them talking in the kitchen as I was going through the hall. I heard Mary Jo say, That Paul, he's the queerest little boy. I think something's wrong in his upper story couldn't sleep last night ever so long thinking of it and wondered if Mary Jo was right. Couldn't bear to ask Grandma about it somehow, but I made up my mind to ask you. So glad you think I'm all right in my upper story. Of course you are. Mary Jo is a silly girl, 
and you're never to worry about anything she says, said Anne indignantly, secretly resolving to give Mrs. Irving a discreet hint as to the advisability of restraining Mary Jo's tongue. Well, that's a weight off my mind, said Paul. I'm perfectly happy now, teacher, thanks to you. Wouldn't be nice to have something wrong in your upper story, would it, teacher? suppose the reason Mary Jo imagines I have is because I tell her what I think about things sometimes. It is rather a dangerous practice, admitted Anne, out of the depths of her own experience. Well, by and by, I'll tell you the thoughts I told Mary Jo, and you can see for yourself if there's anything queer in them, said Paul. But I'll wait till it begins to get dark. That's the time I ache to tell people things. And when nobody else is handy, I just have to tell Mary Jo. But after this, I won't. If it makes her imagine I'm wrong in my upper story, I'll just ache and bear it. And if the ache gets too bad, you can come to Green Gables and tell me your thoughts, suggested Anne, with all the gravity that endeared her to children who so dearly love to be taken seriously. Yes, I will. I hope Davy won't be there when I go because he makes faces at me. I don't very mind because he is such a little boy and I'm quite a big one. Still, it's not pleasant to have faces made at you. And Davy makes such terrible ones. Sometimes I'm frightened he will never get his face straightened out again. He makes them at me at church when I ought to be thinking of sacred things. Dora likes me, though, and I like her. Not so well as I did before she told Minnie May Barry that she meant to marry me when I grew up. I may marry somebody when I grow up, but I'm far too young to be thinking of it yet, don't you think, teacher? Rather young, agreed teacher. Speaking of marrying reminds me of another thing that's been troubling me of late, continued Paul. Mrs. Lim was down here one day last week, having tea with Grandma, and Grandma made me show her my little mother's picture, the one Father sent me for my birthday present. I didn't exactly want to show it to Mrs. Lind. Mrs. Lind is good, a kind woman, She isn't the sort of person you want to show your mother's picture to, you know, teacher. But of course I obeyed Grandma. Mrs. Lynn said she was very pretty but kind of actressy looking and must have been an awful lot younger than Father. Then she said, some of these days your pa will be marrying again, likely. How will you like to have a new ma, Master Paul? Well... The idea almost took my breath away, teacher. I wasn't going to let Mrs. Lynn see that. I just looked her straight in the face, like this, and I said, Mrs. Lind, father made a pretty good job of picking out my first mother, and I could trust him to pick out just as good a one the second time. I can trust him, teacher. But still, I hope if he ever does give me a new mother... He'll ask my opinion about her before it's too late. 
there's Mary Jo coming to call us to tea. I'll go and consult with her about the shortbread. As a result of the consultation, Mary Jo cut the shortbread and added a dish of preserves to the bill of fare. Anne poured the tea, and she and Paul had a very merry meal in the dim old sitting room, whose windows were open to the gulf breezes, and they talked so much nonsense that Mary Jo was quite scandalised and told Veronica the next evening that the schoolmiss was as queer as Paul. After tea, Paul took Anne up to his room to show her his mother's picture, which had been the mysterious birthday present kept by Mrs. Irving in the bookcase. Paul's little low-ceilinged room was a sort of whirl of ruddy light from the sun that was setting over the sea and swinging shadows from the fir trees that grew close to the square, deep-set window. From out this soft glow and glamour shone a sweet, girlish face with tender mother eyes that was hanging on the wall at the foot of the bed. That's my little mother, said Paul with loving pride. I got Grandma to hang it there when I'd see it as soon as I opened my eyes in the morning. I never mind not having the light when I go to bed now because it just seems as if my little mother was right here with me. Father knew just what I would like for my birthday present, although he never asked me. Isn't it wonderful how much fathers do know? Your mother was very lovely, Paul, and you look a little like her. Her eyes and hair are darker than yours. My eyes are the same color as father's, said Paul flying about the room to heap all available cushions on the window seat. Father's hair is grey, and he has lots of it, but it is grey. You see, father is nearly fifty. That's a ripe old age, isn't it? But it's only outside he's old. Inside he's just as young as anybody. Now, teacher, please sit here, and I'll sit at your feet. May I lay my head against your knee, the way my little mother and I used to sit? Ah, this is real splendid, I think. 